I once had the unfortunate opportunity to stand before a judge in a courtroom, and it was terrifying. And I wasn't even the defendant. I was actually one of the plaintiffs uh, in a small claims uh, lawsuit over a roommate who bailed on me and my friend and, and left us with a, a few thousand dollar bill in order, to, uh, in order to cover rent. And one thing I learned very quickly and have confirmed uh, while sitting in other court cases here in Kanabic County uh, is that um, real courtrooms are nothing like they are on TV. Uh, in fact, they're, they're kind of boring, but uh, they're certainly uh, nonetheless scary and intimidating. Uh, I was already out the amount, and my friend and I were already out the money that we uh, were owed, so whether or not the judge ruled against us, I mean, at that point, it was just sort of, you know, what it was. Um, but when uh, he called us up to the bench to plead our case, it was scary. It was scary when he walked in the room and the bailiff told everyone to, to stand up just because he is walking in. If you don't stand up when this guy walks in, you, are, uh, you may be guilty of contempt of court. You couldn't sit until he sat and the bailiff told you to sit. And this is no Rusty the bailiff, by the way. I mean, this is a sheriff officer. And when we're before him, we couldn't address him by his first name. We couldn't call him Mr. So-and-so. We couldn't even call him Judge, whatever your, your name is. We had to address him as your honor and nothing else. What was good for our case is that the defendant forgot that rule and was very quickly told that, uh, that he is in a courtroom and he needs to remember who he was speaking to. Uh, the judge in that a particular Blue Earth County courthouse. And indeed, when I've been in the courtroom with uh, Judge Stoney Hillius here in Connecticut County, when I've sat in on court, uh, they not only have a commanding presence, but it demands respect because of his uh, position. And if the manner in which we uh, honor a judge in courts is of vast importance, then how much more when it comes to God? The Bible attributes many different titles to God. And one of them is that of judge. This is not a judge that sits over a, a particular geographical location as it is, but rather this is the, the creator of the universe. And because he's the creator of the universe, he has jurisdiction over everything. In our text this morning, verse 13 of Psalm 96 says this, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. So with that in mind, the question that we are immediately concerned with this morning is, does God care about how we address him? And does God care about how we worship him? Does God care if we choose the manner in which we come together and worship him, or do his desires trump or even dictate how we are to worship? And I believe that our text this morning is very clear that it's even an echo chamber with the rest of Scripture uh, that uh, God deeply cares how we worship him, how we address him, and how we interact with him. And, <coughs> excuse me, and today we're going to look 
at one way in which we were supposed to worship him, through singing. We are to sing praises to the Lord in joyful expectation that uh, he will come and make everything right through his righteous judgments. So let's look at four basic aspects of worship through singing from Psalm 96. And the first thing that we need to do is we need to sing. We need to sing. The main verb that you and I are being called to today and throughout all of our days is found right here in verse 1. Sing a new song to the Lord. Now, we can, we can temporarily push pause on that idea of a new song for just a moment and focus on the main task. As people of God, as people who, are, uh, who have been taken by God's grace out of the kingdom of darkness and out of our sin and have been brought into the kingdom of his beloved Son, we are to sing. Notice that there is one qualification here. That you're God's child. That you've trusted in Christ. If you are God's, you are to sing. And notice it doesn't say here that you're to sing only if you have a good voice. It says you're to sing Sing to the Lord, no expectations. Now, I know that there are many here and many throughout uh, our, our nation that will gladly belt out the national anthem at some sporting event, or they will uh, gladly sing, take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch, but yet when they come to a church, it's very stoic, and they don't want to sing. We're in the presence of Almighty God with fellow believers. Folks, this isn't a suggestion. This is a command. It's an imperative, would be the grammatical way of saying it. We're to sing to the Lord. And this is one reason among many that the pandemic has been so difficult for churches. When the government is saying, don't sing because you could potentially spread the virus, which is probably true, by the way, are we to disobey the clear command of God? Or is there a halfway mark, like one church in town who uh, said we can't sing, but you can certainly hum along? Well, there's a difference there. And I think that we need to follow the lead of the Apostle Peter when he said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that we must obey God rather than man. Why? Because the psalmist here gives us answers in the following verses. In verse 1b, the psalmist tells us, though, that it can be personally fulfilling, worship through singing must be done in community with other people. It must be done with fellow saints. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. When we come together to worship, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different socioeconomic uh, context that we come from. We have a vast array of age demographics. We, uh, we have a vast array of, uh, of people where they come from. We have people that were grown up here in Minnesota. We have people that grew up on the east all the way to the west coast that are here worshiping with us. And when we join voices together here locally, we are linking arms with those who are singing to the Lord down the street at Trio or down the street at First Presbyterian or across the way at Zion Lutheran and so on and so forth. 
And it goes beyond that. We sing with people in the region, in Minneapolis, and throughout Minnesota, and throughout the country, and indeed throughout the world. Furthermore, our singing ought not to be stifled because verses 2 and 3 tell us that singing is one way that we declare the goodness and the glory of God. Look what it says here. Sing to the Lord. Or the, bless his name. Well, the word bless there is, is another word for, for worship. Name is his character. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. There's a reason why here at Emmanuel we don't sing a lot of songs that you're going to hear on KTIS. Because we want to be deeply rich and thoughtful and theological with our songs. That last song, He Will Hold Me Fast, is something you won't typically hear on Christian radio. Because we need to, as verse 3 here, declare His glory among the nations and His wondrous works among all the peoples. So we need to sing because it's one way in which God commands us to worship Him. The word worship, as Pastor Dave had said uh, last week, comes from an old English uh, word for worth. So when we worship, we are basically ascribing worth to someone or something, in this case, the Lord God Almighty. Now, going back to verse 1, the author tells us that we're to sing a new song. And it's interesting to note, uh, it's a side note, but the Apostle John says in John chapter 21, verse 25, he says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the, the whole world itself could contain the books that were written. And while that's true, it's not so with music. We have tons of music that's being pumped out all the time. Music is cultural. It's always changing. There's always a fresh way to declare to the Lord of his goodness and his glory. The songs and the way that we sing here in the United States is very different from how they'll worship in Zambia or Russia or Israel or China, wherever it is. It's cultural, but it's singing to the Lord. There was a time in which the songs that you would find in the hymnal were fresh and new. How many of them have stood the test of time? Maybe a dozen, a couple dozen? There's always room for new songs to please the Lord and to recount his story in creative ways that are culturally uh, relevant for our context. And we must learn them and we must sing them with gusto. So we got to sing. But number two, we need to sing to the Lord for his greatness. So we have the content here. No one likes to do things because they should. Purpose and meaning tend to bring about productivity. I've been watching a, a World War II documentary on Netflix recently, and I, and I got to the point where uh, the U.S. had not yet gotten involved in, uh, in the, the Second World War because, you know, the Great War was really only about 20 years before that, and they had no interest in, in getting into a new war. There was no purpose for it, so we weren't particularly jazzed about it. But as soon as the attack on Pearl Harbor came about, well, all of a sudden we had purpose and meaning for getting into the war. It meant something because purpose and meaning are driving 
factors in what we do. And when we gather together, uh, it's not to have a spiritual campfire with really fun songs. The reason why we gather together is to proclaim the greatness of God and what he has done for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that ought to put a fire underneath us under our usually distracted and lackadaisical hearts. Verse 4 tells us, For the Lord is great and highly to be praised. That word for there is very important. Whenever you see the word for in the beginning of a sentence like this, um, it ought to make you sit up in your chair. Because this is the reason why we are to do something. It's a purpose statement. It is what's called a purpose clause. And in this verse, it's because God is great. He is highly to be praised. He is to be feared about above all gods. What is so great about God? Well, what isn't? He is the creator of everyone and everything. How many of you created something out of nothing? I don't see any hands. Because you haven't. But God has. And he did it with perfect beauty and meaning. The Lord is great because he's a redeeming God. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that we all went astray. Like sheep, we have turned, all turned to our own way. Yesterday it was interesting because uh, women's archery was on on the Olympics. And uh, if they have archery on again, uh, it's fascinating to watch because you'll see that they're really quite good. And if any one of us tried that, we would, uh, we would nonetheless miss the target, if not fall flat on the ground. When it comes to our moral archery team, not only do we miss the bullseye, but we miss the target completely. We try to bend back, we try to shoot, and it just falls up short. We're lost and we're in need of rescue. But the good news is that the Bible tells us that what we couldn't do, God has done for us. He didn't just get us in line and help us line up the bow and, and, and help us in that sort of way and, and let us shoot it with his assistance. He took our place in the moral Olympics. He said, son, sit down. Watch me do this. And with it, he gave a moral bullseye. He was sinless. And in his death, he took the punishment for us. And not only did he hit the bullseye for us, but he also decided to keep himself off of the winner's stand so that we can be elevated onto the winner's stand in his place. The Lord is great and highly praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, don't let, don't let this allow you to drive into the thought that there are multiple gods and that Yahweh is just the top dog. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. This is a cultural reference. 
saying, whatever you believe in, God is greater. You might as well just get rid of those so-called, quote-unquote, gods and come worship what is true. And verse 5 backs this up. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, he made the heavens. So in the ancient Near East, in the time of, of, of the Bible, uh, many people would buy what was called household gods. Things that were fashioned out of wood, gold, silver, whatever sort of thing you can construct it. And they would put it on their, the shelves of their house and they would, they would worship their household gods. And so what the psalmist is saying here is look at those things on your shelf. The things that you had to pay to be made. The Lord God, he made the entire universe. And yet you are worshiping these little pieces of arts and crafts. And not only that, verse 6 gives us the illustration of, a, of God's holy court. These idols are made with hands and they, they sit on shelves. And verse 6 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I got sucked into Downton Abbey for at least a few seasons. I didn't finish it out, but I got sucked in for a little bit. And uh, the family at Downton Abbey, uh, they uh, show uh, how they're related to the crown somehow, right? Because they have servants everywhere. Maids and butlers and waiters and valets, which they pronounce valets, which is kind of weird. But, and all sorts of those things. The presence of those people heightened the nobility of the Crawley family. And how much more the queen, if we were to put our imagination to it? How much more, however, in God's royal palace. But in God's sanctuary, there aren't maids. There's not that really cool old butler with the really nice voice that you could just listen to all day. Rather, verse 6 says that splendor and majesty and strength and beauty work as his kingly attendants. These are the things that show his excellent greatness Household gods don't hold a candle to what God's got going on in his chambers. Now the problem is that we don't often, well, that we often find it difficult to place ourselves in this kind of world. I would hope that none of you have a household god sitting on your shelf that you bought at the local paganism store. It's not something that we typically have around here. However, all of us have household gods that are sitting on the shelf of our heart. All of us have taken God from his rightful place as number one in our lives, as uh, him who sits on the throne of our hearts and have replaced him with things like leisure and food and money and fashion and 
and work and sex and education and appearances and popularity and relationships. And these things are all good in and of themselves. But we have perverted them by taking God off the shelf and putting them on the shelf instead as highly to be praised. And we need to recognize those things, take them off of the shelf, redeem them for the purpose that they serve and put God on the throne of our hearts as he already is in the universe. So we need to sing of his greatness. And third, we need to sing with missions in mind. We need to sing with missions in mind. John, uh, John Piper once famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Now, obviously what he meant by that was that missions happen because there are places in the world where God is not worshipped. They may be praising Allah or the, the Brahmin pantheon of gods or some animistic deity, but as we said before, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Only the Lord is the true God. And so part of our singing is both mourning the fact that there are people throughout the world who don't know Jesus. But it's also celebrating the fact that God is using his people to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It can't be shaken. He judges the people fairly. Verse 10 is the theological center of this psalm. There have been so many times in which I have witnessed to people, and they have said to me, well, I mean, that's all fine and dandy, but I have a private faith. The fact is, there's nothing in the Bible anywhere that says have a private faith. But rather, he calls us to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is Lord. Obviously, there are certain contexts and certain places where you have to be very careful in how you go about it because, uh, you know, whatever the reason would be. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we are to go into the world, into our community, and proclaim the excellencies of who God is and his mercy and his grace. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore, uh, there's actually a, something called a participle, so it's going therefore as you are going about your life, go and make disciples of all nations. And he wasn't reserving that command for only the super-Christians who were called to overseas ministries. This command is for anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. There is no difference in spiritual levels between one who wants to go to the unreached and unengaged people groups throughout the world and uh, the person who wants and is trying to witness among their coworkers here in Mora. 
There is no difference between an InterVarsity or Campus Crusade staff member who is going out in an, an antagonistic, uh, antagonistic collegiate uh, school and someone that walks across the street and invites their neighbor into their home so that they can form a relationship and eventually share the good news of Jesus. We're called to go into the world, wherever that might be, across the street, at work, in the cities, in Nigeria, maybe even in our own homes with our children. We are called to that, to make disciples who will in turn worship. So when we meet together here, we sing with missions in mind. But fourth and finally, we sing with the end in mind. Let's be honest for just a minute. Sometimes it is really, really hard to praise the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Some of you are feeling that like right now. Some of you are thinking, come on, pastor, just get on with it. Man, you're fighting it right now, okay? It's difficult. We're almost done, I promise. When we watch the news or when we uh, have to come to grips with our own issues, um, seeing God's hand can be difficult, and one thing that's helpful is to place our minds in the future. Yes, God is at work right now. But all the pain, all the toil, all the heartache is leading up to something. And so the psalmist, he shifts gears here and he looks into the future in verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that it fills resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy. Before the Lord, he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Now, I, I have no idea what it's going to look like when rocks and trees and inanimate objects or praising Jesus. It might just be a literary device. I don't know. But what we take into account, what Paul writes in Romans chapter, 30, uh, Romans chapter 8, we can see why verses 11 through 13 are so important when singing through heartbreak and looking into eternity. Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So when sin entered the world, our tendency is to, uh, is to believe that it only affects our, uh, our moral and maybe our physical capacities or our behavioral and that's true, but when we look at Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation, we see that the fall has even affected nature. That nature is, is broken. It's been a really hot summer with very little rain. Crops are suffering. People are limited uh, in their outdoor activities. Water limits have been imposed in some cities. In other years, we see instances of tornadoes that have wreaked havoc in, in, in towns. We see uh, stories of flooding that turns people's lives upside down. 
Earthquakes destroy. Blizzards can be deadly if you're not careful. All these things were not in the original blueprint. Yes, sin has affected our body and our, and our minds and our behaviors and our interactions, but it's also affected the world itself that we, that we live in. But there's coming a day that the heavens will be glad and the earth will rejoice and the sea and all that fills it will resound. The fields will celebrate. The trees will shout for joy. Friends, there's coming a day when Christ is coming back. He already started the process. When he gave us salvation from our sin and he is going to finish it when he comes back and makes all things new. When he comes He's going to set up court and he will sit down in judgment. All people won't rise, but Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not just people who believe in him now, but there will be people that will spend an eternity apart from him that will be forced to bow the knee to the glory of Jesus when he comes. And he's coming, and verse 13 tells us, to judge the earth with righteousness. He will be faithful to his character. He will punish wrong and he'll magnify right. Those who have received him will, will, will receive pardon and forgiveness. Those who have not will be thrown into an eternity apart from the grace of God. Now, I don't know what that looks like, and don't pretend to, but it certainly doesn't sound like anywhere anyone would want to go. So when we sing... We sing with a view of a future reality that Christ is going to finish what he started in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. In the second to the last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, uh, verse 20, the Apostle John writes this, He who testifies to these things says, I'm coming soon. And John's commentary on that is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, it's a very fearful thing to go before a judge, even if you're not on the hot seat. However, if we're in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to fear. The Bible tells us that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has gone through the sentence for us. We have been freed to sing. Let's pray.